I think it's rather striking uh, as we uh, consider all the pulpits that are in even the United States. As if you were to uh, survey and listen to uh, the multiple types of sermons that so many people will flock to hear uh, on a Sunday morning, the various types of messages, uh, the sheer variety of talks one might find themselves depending upon where they land. Perhaps there are people, I shouldn't say perhaps, there are people as they attend uh, the Lord's Day for worship, they hear stories about um, the church's call to social transformation as if the church were simply some uh, alternative lobby interest group. Uh, There are some pulpits that try to be the cultural trendsetter as if the purpose and mission of the church would be uh, to have more followers on social media than anything else. The great trend of maybe 20, 30 years ago was the message of personal affluence, Uh, those stories of health and wealth that if you simply name it and claim it, uh, then you will have your wildest dreams come true. What is really, I think, discouraging is that these various messages that have infiltrated the church are not the gospel. Not that it's wrong to be part of a particular uh, lobby interest group per se. Not that it is necessarily bad to be concerned with your own health or to work hard and honestly. But what we find is that the church is the sole institution on earth that has been entrusted with a particular message that no other group on earth has been entrusted with. Here, uh, in the proclamation of the gospel weekend and week, week in and week out on the weekend, we are called to proclaim that particular message of hope where man's chief happiness consists not in finding better employment, not in forging stronger social networks, not even in uh, renewing uh, um, fledgling communities, beneficial as all these things might be. Rather, our task as the body of Christ is found in the proclamation of the free forgiveness of sins that is found through faith in Christ alone. No other organization on earth has been entrusted with this. And so if the church is to fail in this mission, the world has no other outlet to hear the greatest news they could ever hear. This psalm reminds us of the Christian's chief happiness and of our chief task as the people of God. The forgiveness of sins, what better news is there than to hear your sins are forgiven? There's two things, uh, two parts I'd like us to consider this evening. First, we'll consider David's own personal testimony. We'll see here in verses 1 to 5. And then his own exhortation to the people of God in verses 6 to 11. It's a very simple psalm, but very profound. Just because it's simple does not mean that it is not important. It is, in fact, the most important message we could ever hear. So two parts, teaching, I'm sorry, testimony 
and teaching. David begins by pronouncing that great blessing, uh, the happiness that the believer has in the removal of his sins. Here, David speaks of, he uses three different terms to speak of the multifaceted and uh, 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 nature of sin. Look at here in uh, verses 1 and 2. It speaks of his transgression being forgiven, his sin being covered, and his iniquity not being imputed to him. Three different overlapping terms that speak of sin in all of its fullness be it in missing the mark, be it in falling short, or even be it in in the intentional high-handed violation of God's law. If if we were to uh, use the illustration of uh, one who was uh, uh, in an archery contest, you you think of uh, Emma uh, plays archery and and, and Jones uh, helps coach an an archery club. You think of somebody who's, who's aiming for the bullseye, they miss the mark. They come close, or maybe not so close. They, 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 they're, they're far away. And then think of somebody who turns right around and shoots in the exact opposite direction. That's sin in all of its kind of cascading and, and, and its various nature. It's not simply a matter of missing the mark. You think of... Um, the shorter catechism, what is sin? It is not any. Uh, it is both any transgression of and lack of conformity to the law of God. It consists in both falling short and in the intentional crossing of boundaries. And yet, the various synonyms that David uses here to speak of sin talks about all of these. Every facet of sin forgiven. That is the great blessing that the believer has. When his sin is covered, when his uh, transgression is taken away, uh, when his iniquity is not imputed, is not reckoned to his account. You know, you'd imagine uh, having a great substantial debt in your bank account. Uh, and then you go down to the bank and the, the, the employee pulls up your bank account and says, I don't know what, what you're talking about. Somebody has now reckoned a million dollars to your account. You're no longer in debt. That is the imagery given here. It is a great blessing. It deals with sin in all of its uh, power, both its guilt and its power. We can use maybe the dual language of uh, uh, the accounting language, what we might call forensic sin, but also the corruptive power of sin. Um, there's that great hymn, Rock of Ages, where it speaks of the need for the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. It's not simply that we have uh, sin that is now reckoned to our account. It is now contorted and distorted and perverted man's nature. He has a perverted spirit. And yet, you see the great blessing that is to be found here. It's not only the blessing upon the man to whom the Lord has reckoned no sin, but it's also the man in whose spirit there is now found no longer any deceit. A man who walks in moral rectitude. It's a blessing that comes not from his own resources, 
but from the God who cancels sin's account and also shatters sin's power. How blessed is the man where every fast of sin is covered and taken away, where the man is found both to be counted righteous and then after that constituted righteous. He is declared to be justified. And then the Spirit of God works in his heart to make him truly and really what God has already declared him to be. Isn't that the great truth that we find in our doctrine of justification and our doctrine of sanctification? They are distinguishable and separate benefits, and yet they are inseparable Simultaneously given, the man that the Lord justifies is the man that the Lord will sanctify through and through to the day of Christ's return. What a great blessing it is, David says. If the great blessing is to have sin taken away, how wretched is the man who continues to bear that sin and to hide it from the one who is most merciful and most gracious. How wretched the condition is the man who refuses to bring his sin to the Lord to find redemption and deliverance from his iniquity. That's what you see here in verses 3 and 4 as David describes his own life as he, like Adam in the garden, sought to hide his sin from his God. Remember the story of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 where they knowingly and willfully rebelled against God's commands and when they heard, heard uh, the, uh, the voice of the Lord as He walks through the garden, what do they do? They run for cover. They sow fig leaves to cover their nakedness as if God would not see what it is that they had done. David says, I am no different. In my sin... When you read David's life, we know of the the heinousness of his sins. He says, I sought to hide my sins from the one who sees all things. And it led him to screaming and to weeping and to wasting away as he is unable to wash the stain of his troubled conscience. One is perhaps reminded of that scene in Macbeth where Lady Macbeth, after she had Uh, urged her own husband to murder the king, she finds that her conscience is now racked with guilt. If you've ever seen a live performance of that play, you see that she finds herself continually scrubbing her hands. Though her hands do not have blood on them, she uh, is aware of her own sin and is unable to make her hands clean. It leads her to take her own life. She has no place to turn, and she recognizes the guilt. Her conscience will not let her live down the guiltiness of her ways. Perhaps one is reminded of Pilate's own seared conscience, as after he betrays the King of kings and Lord of lords and hands him over to be crucified, he simply says, I have washed my hands of the matter, it is not my problem. 
innocuous to the treachery that he himself has committed. In contrast to these two figures, one fictitious and one historical, we find King David racked with a guilty conscience. Unlike Lady Macbeth, who took her own life, and unlike Pilate, who simply pretended it was no big deal, we find that David knows what he has done. His conscience will not let him forget that he has violated the law of his God, and we find that the hound of heaven will not let him off the hook. There's a certain wordplay that's going on here, I think, where David says, your heaviness, your hand was heavy upon me, verse 4. That word there for heaviness is the word there that we see translated elsewhere for glory. The glory of God weighs heavy upon David. His sin, uh, his conscience is granted no respite from uh, the presence of God's glory. Though David tries to hide his sin, he is made to feel the hidden evils of his heart. He is not only worn, but he is withered. He talks about his bones wasting away. He talks about, he uses this imagery here in verse 4 of a, as it were, a cake that's left out under the blazing summer sun. Though a cake might, once it initially comes out of the oven, is nice and moist and tasty. You leave it out in the blazing summer heat all day. What happens? It dries out and it turns to rock, as it were. David says, that's what my soul has become. The longer and longer I hid my sin from God. It destroyed me, body and soul. He finds himself hardening. More and more, he finds the joy of life uh, rushing out of him. And so in verse 5, we find the whole centerpiece of the psalm. The, The movement, trajectory of the psalm moves to this particular truth. David, realizing he has nowhere else to turn, though he's tried to hide his sin from God, decides that he will not hide it any longer. He decides to confess his sin to his God fully and without reservation. Again, a further wordplay going on here. He says, I have yada made known to you my sin, and I have yada confessed my sin. He, there is nothing that he hides any longer. For better or worse, as it were, David says, I've, I can't hide this anymore. As wretched as it is, as awful as it is to, to look at myself in the mirror and say, yes, this is what I have done. No more excuses. Whatever may come, I have to confess it. He turns to the Lord. Again, we see this threefold repetition of his treachery, that of iniquity, transgression, and sin. Sin in all of its fullness He's not simply saying, you know, mistakes were made, speaking in the passive voice. He owns his sin. He, partic- he, he, he um, uh, confesses his particular sins particularly. This is not simply some generic confession. He makes known his particular sins to God. 
and how his sin has rendered him guilty, alienated from God's presence, and corrupt. And in the midst of that, he finds a striking truth. He said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. And what happens? How does the Lord respond? Does the Lord say, great, you've declared yourself to be guilty, and now it's time to serve your sentence? Nope. David says, I will confess my sins to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Full stop. No passive-aggressive remarks. No, well, okay, just say a couple more Hail Marys. Do your penance, and then I'll forgive you. I've confessed my sins to the Lord. And the Lord, the Lord, abundant in mercy, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and kindness, who does not deal with our sins as they deserve, but as far as the east is from the west, so surely does he remove our transgressions from us. That is what the Lord does to David. And here we find it's not simply a one and done as if the Lord says, well, I'll show mercy to David, but to no one else. Because now David, having known the joy of the forgiveness of sins, now turns and addresses anyone who will hear him and say that same offer of pardon and mercy and forgiveness is found for anyone who turns to the Lord in faith. You see that here in uh, verses 6 to 11. Therefore, David says, bringing into light his own record of what God has done for him, it sets the pattern and model for all who will hear him. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to the Lord. It tells us what should we do? How should we then live to quote the words of the late Francis Schaeffer? David's response, of course, to that question is, confess your sins before it is too late. You notice that here, in a time when you may be found, not to treat your own sins lightly, where you say, well, I'll confess my sins later on down the road. Maybe two, three months from now, let me have my fun first. What guarantee is it that the Lord will be found three months from now? Something the psalmist brings to our attention in Psalm 95, only while it is still called today, as none of us are promised a tomorrow. This is a call to lay hold of David's offer, the Lord's offer for forgiveness, right now. The great promise, the floods will not reach you. How striking it is that this psalm occurs in the same portion as we heard a few weeks ago from Psalm 29. The Lord who sits enthroned over the flood. Even as the whole earth is judged for her sin, David here says, oh, when you make the Lord your refuge, those floodwaters of judgment will not reach you. The one who brings calamity on account of one's sin, is the same one who delivers from that calamity and judgment. How striking it is, 
the only one who could save us from the wrath to come is the Lord Himself. As He sends His Son to deliver us from His own wrath. A wrath that is justly due each and every one of us. Here is a God who delivers us from the asphyxiating constrictions of calamity and divine wrath. Here is one who is not only willing to save, I'm sorry, not only able to save, but he is also most willing. What a, a striking picture this is. Where David is, as it were, his own worst enemy. The one who continues to hide his sin from the Lord, the judge of all, and yet the Lord is saying, come now, let us reason together. Though your sins be like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Here is the Lord perched and waiting, anxious as it were, eager to dispense not judgment, but mercy. Here David instructs the church in Christian living. You know, I think it's significant that um, when you read Luther's 95 Theses, first thing that Luther says right out of the bat, reminds us, is that repentance does not only constitute the starting point of the Christian life, repentance is descriptive of the totality of the Christian life is the very posture in which we walk. It is the air in which we breathe. David here uses this particular illustration to remind us that this is, in fact, what we are called to do. David says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. How should we go? Well, confess your sins. When? As soon as you can. While it is still called today. Because the Lord is abundant in mercy and pardon. An illustration David gives here, he says, don't be like the horse and the mule who have to be domesticated, who have to be reined in by bit and bridle to come near to its master. David says, don't be like them, those beasts who are forced to do their master's bidding against their will. In other words, he's calling us to come fully and freely to the throne of grace. That we not be forced to do it. That we not hide our sins and transgressions and iniquity. But that we come as soon as we can running into our Father's arms, confessing our sins, knowing that to whosoever will turn to the Lord, He will by no means cast them out. No matter how long you have been holding on to that sin, No matter how heinous you think that sin is, no matter how heinous that sin truly is, the Lord is abundant in mercy. The friend of sinners, prostitutes, and tax collectors. Over and over we see in the gospel is a picture of the God-man who spends his time dining with the very people that nobody wants to be around. Not to tell them that their sin is okay and that they can continue living as they want, but as Jesus does with a woman who's caught in adultery, he tells her, your sins are forgiven. 
Go and sin no more. It's our Savior's sane message to us. The wicked man has many sorrows, none the least of which is this, that his, that his conscience can afford him no rest. That he has a conscience that is so stricken with sin that he feels compelled to free from the one, to flee from the one who alone is able to forgive the repentant sinner and mend the broken heart. And until that wicked man, until that sinner turns to Christ, he will know no safety. He will know no joy. He might cling to fleeting pleasures. He might try to fill up his life with luxurious goods and frivolities to try to, uh, uh, to, to inoculate his screaming conscience. He might try to drown it out with drugs and alcohol and various uh, illicit pursuits, but he will find no peace of conscience until he can turn to the one who is alone willing and able to forgive sin. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. But for the righteous man, there is joy. What greater joy is there to be found than this? What other message does the church have to proclaim than this? As the world battles over the best economic policies to have, as it fights over various foreign treaties, all of those things of which are necessary and important, we find that the church's job is not to get embroiled in that, for we are of a different kingdom altogether. We are part and parcel of a kingdom that is not of this world. And the message that we have been entrusted with is not to proclaim a new social program to eliminate hunger, poverty, or oppression, but the proclamation that there is a God who is willing and able to forgive sin in all of its fullness and in all of its treachery. That there is a God who is willing and able to declare you to be righteous. And a God who now says, now that I have declared you to be just, I will now work in you to make you just. To make you righteous. And we're left asking, how is this possible? How can this God forgive sins? And yet the Old Testament itself points to the stark reality of how this must transpire. God can only forgive sins on account of the death of another. The whole order of the religious system of the Old Testament pointed to this. Even as Israel is led out from Egypt and into the wilderness, as they are given God's law and told of His holiness, they are also given a particular set of ceremonies that, 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 that depict for them how sin is to be taken away. It is to be taken away through the lamb that is provided who will take away their sin. That lamb, spotless though it is, though it has done no wrong, dies in the place as the vicarious substitute in the place of the sinner. And yet we find, even in the Old Testament, the blood of bulls and goats is unable to reckon with sin in all of its fullness over and over again because those sacrifices have to be repeated over and over and over again on a daily basis. As the author of Hebrews says, it proves to us the insufficiency of the blood of those bulls and goats. And yet it depicts for us the nature of the great sacrifice to come 
Even as the high priests of old continued to die and new priests had to rise, it attested to the reality that there is, Psalm 110, coming a priest according to a different order, not the order of Aaron or Levi, but one who comes after the order of Melchizedek without beginning or end, the one who holds the power of an indestructible life, the one who has come to offer up not simply the blood of another bull or another goat, but the one who has come to offer up himself as a vicarious substitute for sin once and for all that our sins might be reckoned with once and for all. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Redemption is found solely in Christ, who comes in mercy, eating with sinners and strangers, who has come to tell us of the Holy One of Israel, who has made provision for sin through the death of His sinless Son. Not that we could continue, that not that we would continue to wallow in our sin, nor that we would to, uh, keep our sin hidden from Him, but that we might come to Him, confessing our sin and turning from it, knowing this. And so whosoever comes to the Lord Jesus Christ, he will by no means turn you away. This psalm reminds us of the blessing of confessed sin. Why hide our sin from the only one who is able to remove it? So we'll sing in just a moment, my sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part, but the whole. That sin is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. O my soul. New Testament reminds us of this great and simple truth that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and He is just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank you for your word, and we pray that as we uh, uh, give attention to your promise that we would not hide our sin from you, that we would not continue to relish our sin, for that sin that we take pleasure in is the very thing that uh, destroys our joy. We pray that you would grant us the grace to repent, to turn from our sin continually, as often as it's necessary, knowing this, that as often as we turn to you, you will forgive us while you still may be found. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.